When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sand Talk, the beach soccer podcast supported by La Liga. With thanks to Beach Soccer Worldwide's partners, Puma, Iconic, United Nations Alliance for Civilizations and Genius. Thank you all for believing in the sport. Welcome along to Sand Talk, the beach soccer podcast. And it is, drumroll please, the countdown to summer show. In today's episode, we'll be paying tribute to the only Premier League top scorer to play beach soccer. And it's not Eric Cantona. Adam Hurry of The Athletic will be here to pay tribute to England's Frank Worthington and his exploits in the 1995 Beach Soccer World Championship, which was the predecessor to the Beach Soccer World Cup. We'll also talk pre-season beach soccer fitness with Luke Kerr, a beach soccer coach who is a former military man, an ultra runner, we're talking 100km races here, and I was also boxed for the British Army, so he knows a thing or two about conditioning players. That's all coming up with myself, Mark Pendergast, and of course, Matt Mills. How you doing, Matt? Hi, Mark. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not bad. I'm actually looking out the window here. I'm in London, by the way, when I do this podcast, okay? Now, I want you to just imagine my scene here. If I really squint my eyes, I'm almost on the beach here because I'm looking out at a building site and there's a decent amount of sand on the floor to my left-hand side here. The sun is out. There's a few clouds, but you can actually see the sun. And if I squint really hard, I'm on the beach. I'm there. Can you describe your situation to me? Can you make it beach soccer-like? I think I can do one better, actually, because I've returned to Barcelona. <sighs> uh, sorry to leave you in England, mm. the rubbish weather, but it's beautiful here. And I'm just a short stroll away from the beach. So might uh, when we're finished here, I might get my football under my arm and go down and have a kickabout. So, yeah, I think you can't do that on your building site, can you? No, I couldn't do that here. I'm just, there's too many bricks in the way. And you know what health and safety is like nowadays. They just, they just don't allow beach soccer on building sites anymore. If I listen just very carefully there, Matt, if I listen to the background, if you just step away from the mic, I, I can hear the sound of the waves gently lapping the beach and the ping-ping of a beach soccer ball flying around. Anyway, as we get set for the summer, the most important thing is the calendar, of course, and that was launched just a week or so ago. 
Uh, let's highlight some of the most important dates there. I think we should start off with World Cup qualifying, which often works hand-in-hand with a federation's particular championship. Uh, 17th of May, World Cup qualifying in CONCACAF. 22nd of May, Conobol. Their qualifying begins there. 23rd of May in Africa for the CAF Championships. And then Europe is the one bringing up the rear, the final one, on the 24th of June. And we go to the World Cup draw on the 8th of July. And Matt, do you want to explain a bit about Asia, what's happening there? Yeah, the AFC, the Asian uh, Football Confederation, they've decided to not hold a qualifier this, uh, this year, I suppose. If you think about it, it's quite understandable, considering the circumstances. The AFC have now decided that they're going to include the three previous finalists from the World Cup in this year's competition. So that will be UAE, Japan and Oman, which also means no place for one of the highest-ranking teams, Iran. Of course, we're looking forward to the World Cup. That is the big one. That starts on the 19th of August in Moscow, which will be in the shadow of a World Cup final stadium, the Luzhniki Stadium. They, they build, they've done this before, haven't they, Matt, where they build the beach soccer stadium right next to the big stadium, so you get a fantastic view of Moscow City Centre and, of course, a World Cup venue in the background as well. And uh, that's not all the action we've got in Europe this year, is it, Mark? No, uh, the EBSL, of course, the Euro Beach Soccer League. That gets a women's event this year for the first time. The women have a regular phase alongside the men's Division A. And then they've got a super final as well, which will be returning to Figueira de Foz in Portugal as well. So really excited to see how that one pans out. Should we stamp some official dates on that? Hold on, let me just do that. It's the 16th of June for the Division A EBSL and the women's. EBSL, the inaugural one of that, and then the EBSL Division B, 28th of July. Super final will be on the 8th of September. So shaping up to be a very, very busy summer, of course, with plenty of World Cup qualifiers, an actual World Cup, and the inaugural Euro Beach Soccer League for women. Rounding off the year will be two fantastic tournaments. We always love going to Dubai. The awards ceremony is normally then. It's full of glamour. Great weather to round off the year. Uh, the Dubai competition will be on the 2nd of November. And then we return to Moscow, which I think, I'm, I'm being biased here, but the fact that it's indoor, it's in the middle of winter in Moscow. Last time we had 7,000 in the arena for the final. The Mundialito de Clubs will be in December in Moscow, date to be announced. But it's shaped up to be a fantastic calendar on what has been the most difficult of year and a half now for beach soccer. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, going back to that event in Moscow, I think it's so important, partly because you just realise how incredibly popular the sport is in Russia. But on top of that, you can showcase some of the best beach soccer indoor, even in the most wintry conditions. So that's why it's one of everybody's favourite events, I think. I mean, arguably, is it the the best tournament? Because you have all the best players from all the best countries playing for all the best clubs. So... We were talking just before we came on air here and we were saying the likes of Grasshoppers of uh, Zurich who had Swiss internationals in their team. Good side. They they took absolute hammerings in this tournament but the, the quality of their play, even at the lower end if you like, was, was, was brilliant. So it is, I would say, the elite tournament really, especially in the club game. It's like the Champions League of, of beach soccer. Yeah, in terms of level, I think you don't really get much better than that. But we didn't even mention the Euro Winners' Cup, Mark, which, of course, is one of the flagship events of the year. And if you ask most of the players, I think most of them will say that it's their favourite event of the year, one they enjoy the most. That will be returning to Nazaré as well this year, let's not forget. 
Yep, the men's and women's events begin on the 12th of July in Nazare, as Matt said. Apart from the calendar, Matt, there is other news in beach soccer. Uh, the Pakistan Beach Soccer League, uh, that came to conclusion with Arena FC winning there. Small uh, round of applause. And there was friendlies in Africa as well. Yep, Senegal hosted Morocco and they beat them in three games. And Senegal will, of course, be the host of the CAF qualifiers for the FIFA Beach Soccer World Cup. So, nice bit of preparation there for them. They'll be feeling confident going into it, I imagine. And then something that we may see more of in the future because it involves less travel but still high, high quality beach soccer is the mixture of national teams playing against club sides. Well, it's an interesting one because you've got a lot of the Belarus team do play in the Russian league as well. So, they're, they're taking out their club sides. The best Russian players are taking out their club sides, but... What a great way to develop players, if you like, or younger players, bringing those players through and they get to play against the best in the world. One thing they're not short of in Russia is uh, snow and uh, beach soccer talent. I'd say yes on both counts. And no surprise when I tell you that the Russian national team won that tournament in St. Petersburg, beating the home side, club side, Kristal. Hello, this is Major, and you are listening to Send Talk, the beach soccer podcast. We mentioned in the last podcast a fantastic article in The Athletic, uh, written by Adam Hurry, talking about England and their very first and only appearance at a Beach Soccer World Cup. Now, last month saw the passing of Frank Worthington, a Premier League top scorer who actually played for England in that Beach Soccer World Cup. And Adam takes up the story for us here. Well, it's, it's a fascinating story about how about England's involvement in the Beach Soccer World Cup because they hadn't even qualified or even even attempted to qualify for so long, except for all the way back in 1995 in the first instalment of the Beach Soccer World Cup or the Beach Soccer World Championship it was then, sort of a semi-official affair. And it, and it just got me thinking, like, England clearly didn't have any beach so- soccer specialists back then, so who on earth made up their squad? And the information was so thin on the ground, it was remarkable how difficult it was to to kind of scrape the internet to try and find out what went on at that tournament, specifically with England as well. And uh, so the squad was as follows. It was Luther Blissett, um, Gary Stevens of Spurs and Brighton and England, and uh, Russell Osman, who was about 35. And so he was, he was, um, he was still in fairly decent shape. Uh, and then Frank Worthington, who by that stage was about 46, or he's in his mid forties at least. And uh, in many ways was a, was a perfect selection for a beach soccer tournament because he had that element of flair where he, he won the golden boot in the in the late 70s he he, he embarked on a very um, exotic post-playing career adventure he played for England at the um, World Cup of Masters also known as the Copa Pele which was um, an over 34s World Cup um, which they played in Brazil uh, they took it to Miami a couple of years after that in 91 I think and he played for Great Britain and England there so he was obviously on the on the hunt for an adventure in a football sense. And uh, in 1995, he became part of this this squad for England's beach soccer team. In terms of Frank Worthington, he went from very sandy pitches in Bolton, as we see <laughs> that that famous goal where he sort of plays it over his own head and then volleys it in. That's, the, that's almost the perfect beach soccer goal. This must have been exactly what he wanted, apart from the running bit, obviously. The, the first thing that you learn about beach soccer, it, both in theory and in practice, I imagine, is that it's very energy sapping to run about on some sand. And um, Luther Blissett told me that um, Worthington, despite having the skill set that was perfectly suited to beach soccer, at the age of 46, uh, he came on, did a bicycle kick, scored a great goal, but he couldn't run. 
He was brilliant, though. Uh, I love Frank. There's nobody like Frank Worthington in football anymore. I think he's quite right in pretty much every possible way. But I think Worthington very much came into his own in the evenings. I think it's fair to say. And they, um, this this motley crew, this absolutely bizarre bunch of um, of wide-eyed English journeymen, going over to Brazil and playing a bit of beach soccer in the in the morning or sort of early afternoon, and then having very much the evenings to themselves in next to the Copacabana and uh, ending up in sort of jazz bars and um, having a great time, but nothing specific was particularly divulged. But I imagine Frank Worthington was very much the uh, orchestrator of it all. When we think about the title of his autobiography, <laughs> I'll let people look that one up on Google because this is a family show. <laughs> you look at that, you can imagine that Brazil was the perfect place for him. What about the, the team themselves? They outperformed what everybody thought really, didn't they? Absolutely. And it's, the fascinating thing while researching the piece was to sort of delve into the um, the newspaper articles about the tournament in in Rio and and um, it got a lot of coverage in in the newspapers there and they were rightly proud of hosting the tournament uh, but England were not given a, a shot at this at all they were they were very much considered the outsiders uh, the Dutch were thought of quite ironically as the dark horses um, and uh, and they they got thumped I think it was seventeen two by Brazil in their first game. So yeah, England were very much ruled out as a as a as a force in this tournament. But they um so they they lost three two in their opening game, and and the impression again I got from the players I spoke to was that this was very much a, a lesson in how to manage these games. It, and it was it was a bit of a kind of a free hit for them in the first game. And Sherwood was particularly proud of his performance, uh, keeping it simply down to three two. Um, but then they beat Germany seven six, which um, for for a number of reasons was a proud moment for for that for that squad. So that was a that was a nice moment. And then um, so they squeezed through to the to the semifinals um, despite losing their last group game to the USA. So they went to the semifinals and they had to face hosts Brazil. And uh, the um, if the previews before the tournament weren't weren't really giving England much chance, they certainly weren't before the semifinals. But they um, the newspapers were saying that England were the biggest revelation of the tournament captivating the Brazilian public, which is a fascinating quote for if you look at the set of players that England had in their squad, plus the fact that this was England's first venture into beach soccer, a completely alien concept. But I can imagine Frank there in his speedos on a beach. This is the place he should have always been playing his football. And you can imagine the crowd really warming to somebody like that. Brazilians love someone who plays with joy. And that was Frank Worthington all over, wasn't it? You're absolutely right. I uh, I think he was very much at the at the front and centre of, of winning over the Brazilian public, who probably would have been rightly sceptical of, of an England team. and But they would have had re- reason to be sceptical. I mean, the Brazilian team they came up against had 200 senior football caps and had played at several, you know, 11-a-side World Cups. England's starting five in that game had played their club football for Lincoln City, Portsmouth, Sudbury Town, Fakenham Town and... Samais Bay, um, if if I'm even remotely pronouncing that correctly, I don't know. They're a team in um, in the lower leagues of the of the Welsh of Welsh system. It was a roasting hot day in Rio. It was an eight thousand strong crowd, and Blissett was telling me. I mean, this sounds so elementary, but he says that the the sand was literally burning your feet. He said so. They were really up against it in pretty much every way. The goalkeeper Steve Sherwood proudly told me that uh, they kept it nil nil for two minutes, which is a fair achievement in the end. But sadly, they went on to lose thirteen two in the semi finals. Zico getting a hat-trick. But I'm sure it was still a celebration for Frank that night. Yeah, I imagine so. I imagine they had a very good time, um, given the complete lack of pressure, which is an unusual thing for an England team going into a major tournament. 
It's taken 26 years for an article to be written about the tournament. Uh, It's in in The Athletic. If you do subscribe, then you can find the article. It's fantastic articles. It really paints a picture of what it was like in that first World Cup. And there's some uh, video in there as well, which people will watch. If you watch modern beach soccer, they'll be saying, is that is that a slow motion replay? But that's that's yes. that's how it was. It's now the specialists who were 22, 23, were darting all over the sand. Back in the day, it was vet, had the skill levels, but maybe not the knees to go with it. They were all innately good footballers. They all played, a lot of them have played at World Cups. Great tribute to Frank Worthington there, who sadly passed away last month. Probably the only English player, I would say, perfectly suited to beach soccer. Because as I mentioned, Matt... Back in the late 70s, by this time of the season, most of the pitches were sand anyway, and that fella could hit a volley. He kept it off the floor as much as possible because of the state of the pitches, and I think it prepared him perfectly for the beaches of Rio. I've just compared Bolton to Rio, and if people have been to Bolton, they will be scratching their heads right now thinking, how has he managed that? Yeah, Bolton is a million miles away from uh, from Copacabana, even if not geographically in terms of what it looks like. Metaphorically, though Bolton does have a nice retail park on the outskirts next to the stadium, but that that should be a whole other podcast. Uh, We also spoke to Luke Kerr, a beach soccer coach, England beach soccer coach, who's a former military man. Okay, get this. An ultra runner. Now, an ultra run is anything above marathon distance. He went well above that. Marathon's 42. He's run 100 kilometres straight. He's also boxed for the army. So when it comes to fitness, this man knows what it's all about. And he talks us here through a pre-season and what it takes to be beach soccer fit. Beach soccer is probably, that's one of the things that highlighted the sport to me more than anything was the, you know, the end-to-end, you know, capacity that's involved in terms of, in terms of competing at that level. It's a little bit like basketball. It's end-to-end. It's non-stop. These guys in basketball are very, very fit and very strong. And it's quite an aggressive sport, although a non-contact sport. It's uh, you know you have to be very very fit and uh, these days there's nowhere to hide on the sand and I think if you look at the likes of Iran and Tahiti you know these are very fit strong athletes who who train out on the sand 24/7 um, and and you know that's what, what what we need is players that can adapt to the sand but compete on the sand for long periods of time so yeah taking your trainers off and training for once or twice a week for an hour on a on a sand area which is, um, you know, you have to pay to go and use is not ideal. Whereas what you need is players that can take their, their feet off and adapt to the sand. And they're constantly on the sand all day, building up different types of muscle uh, and improving their, you know, their VO as well. So, yeah, um, you know, it is a very, very hard sport and tough going. And, you know, the recovery after it, in big tournaments where you're back-to-back games as well, that, you know, you've, you've got to be a game realistically. I mean, you see sometimes, I'm obviously there as a commentator quite early, and it's almost like cruelty. You watch somebody come on with a tractor and plough the sand up. I don't think you realise this or appreciate this on the TV. You're probably sinking up to your ankle before you've even started. So walking out for the line-up can uh, leave the average fellow out of breath, really, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember taking over the England team in 2006, and... We, myself and Jamie O'Rourke, who Jamie's a very respected guy in the beach soccer community, scored goals against Brazil for England out in Durban when I was the coach. And me and Jamie took the game to a different mantle. So we went from the players that were kind of grafted in with the, the sort of John Scales era to players that were needed to be fit. And we were down at Yellow Wave in Brighton and we put in a huge amount of agility and 
uh, fitness tests to really wind out who we didn't think could compete at that level. And I think that was the catalyst then for us in England to say, actually, if you want to come and compete at this level, it's all right having a great first touch or doing a dead ball, but actually you've got to be able to contribute every minute of the game. So the, the whole purpose of having 10 fit players is to be able to compete with that that sand area, you know, you're fighting with the sand, you're fighting with the ball constantly moving. And I think more importantly, you know, if you've got players that can't think that fast ahead because they're more concerned about catching their breath, then you're going to lose games and you're going to lose seconds. So, yeah, the fitter and stronger you are, the more advantage that gives you. And if you look at the, uh, you know, the teams that you, I spoke about, like Iran and stuff like that, they are in your face. You know, it's a press, high-level game. And I use the words of Eric Cantona, you know, Eric Cantona always said to me, it doesn't matter if we concede five, as long as we concede six. And it's all about attack, attack, attack. And uh, and that's what I love about Breach Soccer. It's fast, it's furious, and it, but you've got to have the energy and the fitness to be able to compete at that level. And it's press, press, press. So, yeah, you've got to be super fit. And um, that's what I love about the game more than anything is that, is that level of, uh, you know, competition that it brings. Well, as a man who's run 100 kilometres and has been a boxing champion as well in the army, I'll, t- I'll definitely take your word on that one. <laughs> Today you go, how to get set for a beach soccer season. Have you done your pre-season training for all the reporting you're going to do this season, by the way, Matt? Are you, are you, no. are you okay on the typing? You're not going to get repetitive strain injury. We're not going to get a stress fracture of the hand. You've, you've, you're well conditioned on that. You've done your prehab. Well, to be honest, yeah, but I, that is an occupational hazard, especially in the summer in beach soccer with non-stop action, non-stop typing. So, yeah, I'm prepared for it, both physically and mentally. Hashtag inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure as those beach soccer players are now ploughing through the sand as we speak, sweating, wondering how they're going to get the next breath, they will think to themselves, hold on, I'm not working as hard as Matt Mills here. The real heroes are in the media box. <laughs> I'm saying nothing about myself. Uh, so thanks very much for listening to Santor, the Beach Soccer Podcast. Uh, don't forget as well, you can... They now say follow, not subscribe on Apple Podcast, by the way. So you can follow That's us on Apple Podcast. for everyone, isn't it? On Spotify, you subscribe. Right. On Apple, you follow. Hold it's on, just, my, my, just hold one second. Hold on, let me just get a pen and write this down. So we don't, don't get it right, okay? Okay, you've got it. If you're on Spotify, you've mm-hmm. got to subscribe. Okay. If you're on Apple Podcast... Hold on, just one second. Let me got... just write that down. Spotify, subscribe, okay? Apple Podcast, mm-hmm. you got to follow. Right, follow. If you're on anything else, then go on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Simply done. All written down there, the instructions. We'll post them to Twitter so you're sorted. You can follow us on the socials as well. The man who controls those and has the details is Matt Mills. Yep, that's right. So if you don't follow us, I will know. At Beach Soccer Worldwide in most places, except on Twitter when it's at Beach Soccer underscore WW. Okay, so subscribe, follow, like, love, applaud, I think I've seen as well. All the good stuff, Send please. Send fan mail. Yep, no thumbs down. No thumbs down, please, on any of the platforms. And we will catch you next time on Sand Talk, the Beach Soccer Podcast. See ya. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.